This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. I cannot understate the importance of physician, clinician leaders in these networks, that they are really the champions for recruiting their peers, holding their peers accountable, and really being ambassadors within the health system too, just as there is a lot of opportunity to promote education and understanding among stakeholders around what the CIN does, what the value proposition is. There's a lot of great work that gets done, and telling that story often gets lost in the midst of our historical care delivery business. And some of this work is some of the most meaningful, impactful work for our patients around improving outcomes and better managing those triple aim goals for our populations. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Duran. Primary care strategy and the economics of employed medical groups have never felt more uncertain than they do right now. New disruptors are not only impacting care pathways, but they're creating new employment options or alternatives after work work for many providers, and they impact how they're going to integrate with traditional systems. Joe Marr from our consulting team is going to join us today to share his experience and expectations about how systems have made clinically integrated networks work and how they continue to evolve. Joe, thanks so much for being back on SG2 Perspectives. Pleasure to be with you, Trevor. Start us off high level. Why is this an important topic to explore now? Why are health system leaders coming to you with questions about their CIN? What have you been hearing from the landscape? If we look at the macro care delivery environment, everybody's acutely aware of 2022, the challenges we faced, and frankly, some of the structural shifts we saw both on the revenue side and the cost side that are going to continue to challenge health systems going forward. I mean, a lot of that rests on the fee-for-service paradigm. Going back a decade or more for some of these systems, they've been investing in clinically integrated networks, which have served a number of purposes. One of the opportunities that comes out of that is the opportunity to create, capture, volume, margin for patients outside of the traditional fee-for-service paradigm. CINs have been a success story of the last decade, and there's still opportunity for these networks to grow and expand their influence, especially in the face of the current economic environment, the care delivery environment, all the challenges that health systems are wrestling with today. I'm going to ask you to go back even another step. Give us a quick history. When did CINs start? What have they done? What problem were they created to solve? CINs really took off in popularity going around the Affordable Care Act reform era, where if we look back, the undercurrents where we were coming out of an economic downturn, the future of healthcare economics were in question. There's a lot of acknowledgement, and it continues to be out there today, of how sustainable is the cost structure for healthcare as it continues to put more of a burden on patients, on taxpayers, on healthcare users, customers, and employers and funders. It's something that the industry been wrestling with and recognizing that we do need to build on the current capabilities and delivery network in place, CINs are a legal structure that were formed with the opportunity to bring together providers that weren't necessarily part of the same company, part of the same organization, part of the same health system that could jointly contract and jointly work on care delivery initiatives over time. It's been in place for a couple decades and really brought together around the triple aim goals of proving outcomes in health, improving patient experience, and improving costs. The good news is that they've really shown a lot of durability and flexibility, both for some of the stated goals, as well as providing value, generating value to patients, to health systems, to providers beyond just those stated goals. All right. From that first wave of experimentation with CINs immediately or shortly thereafter the ACA, 
What did we learn? What did that first wave look like? Were there patterns to the models? What did we learn coming out of that first group of experimenters? I like to point to the Advocate Physician Partners case study, which is one that folks who know the CIN world are probably quite familiar with it. Advocate has been very public in their publishing of data. They're sharing their experience. That makes them such a good case example. Some of the learnings were they were able to measurably improve quality across the care continuums. We look at in the ambulatory setting, improved process metrics. So we think about our screenings and chronic disease management. In the acute care setting, they're able to reduce utilization and ditto with post-acute spending, especially on the skilled nursing side of the house, they were able to reduce skilled nursing days, reduce average length of stay. So really demonstrating that ability to create value across the care continuum. Another nice part that Advocate has shown is the ability to capture that value. Their biggest contract was with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois, which allowed them to set up a quality program that incentivized the system the advocate physician partners for performing in these value-based arrangements. They showed that those incentives were able to grow over time. They were able to share those incentives with the participating providers. That's a good case example of an early success story. We also learned a lot about the CINs that while there was a lot of early hope that this would really accelerate the transition to value, and in some ways it has, it's still a lot of work to stand up these entities and to make these transitions. Standing up a CIN does take some expertise. The good news is it's something within reach for all health systems, all providers, almost all that want to venture down this road. There are a number of good playbooks and blueprints out there to follow. And frankly, those systems today that are looking at this can even accelerate their growth just by learning from those that have gone before. Secondly, going back to the underlying purpose of these entities was for value focus. So aligning around payment models, quality care delivery models outside the traditional fee for service. On that front, we're seeing that that shift is taking longer than at the outset of CIN development was expected. Not necessarily a bad thing, just a reality that we're in a service industry, we're in a care delivery industry, and changing behaviors, changing incentives in this complex ecosystem takes time. There's been a balance of both the urgency to proceed, but also comfort with the structural shifts that need to take place. The good news is that the CIN structure has really enabled that and allowed for that development and evolution over time. And then lastly, a key learning from the early phase was there are a lot of initiatives that do play well in both the fee-for-service and value-based care world that CINs have been able to demonstrate success on. We look at not just some of those value-based metrics that I shared with the advocate case example, but also on some of the provider recruitment and retention and alignment factors. It really can be a strong vehicle for aligning with community providers, community docs that want to collaborate, perhaps even join your contracts but prefer that autonomy and independence of maintaining their status with a large IPA or as a 1Z, 2Z shop. The good news in this collaboration, it also creates a logical mechanism for network integrity. This is really building those channels that incentivize high-value care and a lot of high-value care is retaining those patients within the network. And that's a very effective way of removing non-value-added care just because it eliminates some of the duplication that we see when patients leave systems, leave EMRs, where it's just tougher to track and it leads to additional workup, different care plans, and perhaps even some conflicting or some advice that can be difficult for patients to work with and make sense of. So it's been about 10 years. Have the models changed a little bit over time? Is where we're at today different from where we started? It depends on which CIN we're looking at. Macro, absolutely. We've seen a lot of evolution and development. And we're still in an environment where health systems are 
standing up CINs, even here in 2023, it's pretty commonplace for a lot of the reasons I outlined above for physician alignment, for some of the successes that created and looking down the road at value structures. We would largely bucket CINs in three categories. We've got your early phase CINs. These are those that are in the formative years, CIN 1.0, as we would term it. A lot of the focus here is around standing up the governance structure, the operating structure, and really aligning the providers and physicians around quality programs and building some of that momentum so that they can move downstream into CIN 2.0. And CIN 2.0, while the pathway is relatively linear, there's a clear categorical shift for networks that are able to advance into total cost of care arrangements. These are shared savings, ACO type arrangements, but also when we can extend those into our Medicaid and or commercial populations where the networks really do start to bring more and more of their attributed lives into value-based arrangements and total cost of care arrangements. That's where we see that evolution coincident with that, that's where we start to see meaningful investments, meaningful incentives that help create both reinvestment pools, as well as really start to align behaviors with some of the financial incentives when we look at primary care opportunities. These can become more meaningful when we're attached to total cost of care. The more evolved CINs today largely fall into that bucket. That's where I would categorize the market today. And I would also acknowledge, and I think it's very important, is both of these are still very much built on fee-for-service care delivery, that we're still, the practices are still funded in the same way. It's very few are adopting capitated arrangements, but rather total cost of care arrangements with some upside downside guards in place and some financial mechanisms that provide backing in these. It's a movement into financial responsibility, but it's certainly not full risk. It's still built on the core business. And I think that makes sense for a lot of providers, a lot of networks as we continue to evolve as an industry. Joe, you spent time on the provider side working on the ground for Henry Ford Health System, who has a large employed medical group and a large CIN. What are some kind of persistent hurdles and what were some learnings about things that worked well? One of the advantages I had working with Henry Ford Health System in Southeast Michigan was seeing essentially three different clinically integrated networks. We had one that was in the central market where I spent most of my time, and that was very much in line with the advocate physician partner blueprint. We had one in Southeast Michigan, the Detroit market, that was also stood up a little bit later based on the historical timeline. And the one in the central market was stood up before that hospital, that health system, that CIN merged with Henry Ford Health System in tandem, or at the same time, Henry Ford Health System was building its own CIN in Southeast Michigan. And both of those networks participated in a Michigan statewide, what was termed a super CIN for a number of years. So we got to see and experience the CIN world through those three lenses and really provided a lot of great insight around the opportunity that resides there and the challenges that these networks face. If I start with the one lesson that I think is probably most prominent for all CINs is just behavior change takes time. If we work to really change clinical practice and medicine, our focus on the patients we're working with, the patients we're serving, and the economic model is shifting, the provider compensation, the incentive models are shifting, it takes time. It takes patience. There should be a level of urgency and patience from the outset, which can be an interesting tension to manage. The second tension point as well is CIN that's working in partnership in tandem with an acute care facility. There's still the fee-for-service backbone that the value-based care works to disrupt some 
some of that utilization trend, including the acute care. Where the care delivery priorities, care redesign priorities are set are key, and engaging stakeholders in both entities is key so that there still can be alignment in this transition rather than letting unnecessary tension boil into the conversation when there's so much more opportunity in managing the transition. Another component that I learned, many CINs can also sympathize, empathize with this, is the CINs are often stood up on a pretty modest budget. The funding mechanisms vary by CIN, by geography, but these are not resourced the way that certainly health plans, providers, the service lines get resourced. These are often stood up on a pretty modest budget. So the resources, the investments out of the gate can be pretty limited. It's important to be targeted in the focus where you go, how you proceed. And that can really lay the groundwork for where you want to go longer term with investments. Another component that is key is the governance structure, how we bring our providers to the table, the representation, especially if we have an employee medical group, independent providers, making sure that they're engaged, they're aligned, they've got a voice, and that they're really the champions and ambassadors. I can't understate the importance of physician, clinician leaders in these networks. They are really the champions for recruiting their peers, holding their peers accountable, and really being ambassadors within the health system too, just as there is a lot of opportunity to promote education and understanding among stakeholders around what the CIN does, what the value proposition is. There's a lot of great work that gets done, and telling that story often gets lost in the midst of our historical care delivery business, where there's a lot of focus on new towers, new equipment, and some of this work is some of the most meaningful and impactful work for our patients around improving outcomes and better managing those triple aim goals for our populations. Jill, what might the next generation of CINs look like? For clinically integrated networks, with all this activity in the marketplace, both from physicians moving to employment, private equity acquiring practices, disruptor conveners coming in, providing opportunities, clinically integrated networks are going to reach this next juncture of how do they want to position yet another landscape with different headwinds and tailwinds and market factors at play. Going back to the basics of what we stood up for, it's around value creation and value capture. And then how can we continue to evolve? What a lot of these clinically integrated networks offer is a very durable value proposition as well. Whereas some of this activity that comes and goes in the market might not have the same level of credibility, reliability, especially with independent providers that really value their community, the stakeholders, the way a health system and a CIN can really point to their history and legacy in the market and really demonstrate that they're in it for the long haul. That's a long way of saying in the next generation of CINs, we're going to see a shift towards more total cost of care responsibility, where risk is no longer a four-letter word in these conversations, but rather it is a strategic lever to introduce in conversations where it makes sense, in contracts where it makes sense, to amplify the upside. We'll see more targeted investments in value creation. We will continue to use data more strategically, more targeted in serving our complex and chronic patients. Not easy as it's been demonstrated. But the level of predictability for who these patients are going to be, we see a lot of turnover in who our sickest 5% of patients are year over year. So identifying and serving those patients to really bend the cost curve from the outset is going to be something that I think we'll see networks get more sophisticated with as they deploy analytics in their programs. And we'll also see a deeper structural understanding of what value is. And by that, I mean the providers, the administrators, those that work within the CINs will continue to be ambassadors for value-based care. If we look across the industry today, 
today, it still is not well understood what value-based care is. And for value-based care to continue to evolve, for CINs to continue to gain traction, to recruit, retain their providers, it's going to require telling the story. It's a very compelling story. And I think it's very important that they continue to build this understanding amongst their administrative colleagues, their operational colleagues, and their provider partners out in the community. Joe, thanks. Great history. And I can see how that tees up your expectations for what the next generation of CNs might look like. Thanks so much for sharing your perspective with our listeners. And I look forward to having you back on SG2 Perspectives real soon. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes. And you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Visient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at visientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.